From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic can make people reassess their lives, like 90-year-old Ken Feltz of Arvada. In the quiet isolation of quarantine, he began coming to terms with a part of himself he'd suppressed, a chapter that remains difficult for him to talk about. Even now... It's still really visceral, huh? Very much so, yes. Do you think that that's proof it's true love? It must be, because it's hung on for 60 years now, buried and then dug up. Later, some Colorado perspective on Joe Biden's Veep pick, Senator Kamala Harris. We'll hear from the first woman Colorado sent to Congress, Pat Schroeder, plus State Representative Leslie Harrod, who co-chaired Harris's presidential campaign here. And wildfire sunsets. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe the isolation of the pandemic has led you to reflect on life. It certainly has done that for 90-year-old Ken Feltz of Arvada. Several months into quarantine, he began writing his memoirs, from his birth in Dodge City, Kansas, to his time in the Navy. And 50 pages in, painful but also beautiful memories stopped him in his tracks. Scenes he had buried... Felt's daughter, Rebecca Mays, noticed a change in her father, and so she asked him what he was missing most. He said he was missing the one true love of his life. And did he say who that person's name was? Not until an email later that night, and he told me it was Philip. Philip? Had you ever heard of Philip I had never heard Philip mentioned at all. Had you ever talked about Philip before this moment, Ken? No, Philip was buried very deep. I was really a closet gay for sure. This, Rebecca, for you must have been quite the revelation. What was your reaction when your dad revealed this to you? He was so sad and my reaction was simply to try and comfort him like I would, whether it was a male or a female. He was so filled with regret and I remember telling him that He made the best decision he could with the information that he had at the time and that I hoped that he could focus on that and not beat himself up so much. You saw him beating himself up? Yeah, he was really upset with himself and felt like he had missed a huge opportunity, the biggest opportunity of his life. My background in starting in Dodge City, Kansas in 1930 was a rather fundamental Christian background. We all learned right and wrong, do and don't. And I, uh, among all the kids, learned very well that homosexuality was a sin and there was consequences for a person who engaged in sin, which I hung on to very tightly a lot of a good part of my life. After your conversation with your daughter, you ultimately decided to come out on Facebook, again at age 90. Uh, what went into that decision, Ken? It was a little bit of... Uh, saying to myself, well, she took that well. I wonder how other people would take it. I talked to some of my best friends, particularly a a, a female friend that I was in water aerobics with that was close to me. And she uh, read my statement I was going to put on Facebook the next day, and she was highly approving of it, as were others. So I then decided, okay, I'll put it on my Facebook. Well, I put it on my Facebook, but I put it on public also, which actually I wasn't really aware of what I was doing. Okay. <laughs> so it got out 
a little further than I had planned on it originally, and then I sent it to all my email friends. Well, and I'll say that this has now made its way around the globe. Uh, Okay, so you ran this post that you were going to put on Facebook. You ran that by someone who you met in the swimming pool. Yes. And she reacted well to it. She Um, did. She really did. As I say, she was the closest friend I had over there, and I was concerned about her uh, because I thought she might have romantic feelings towards me. And I really felt bad if that was true, and I wanted her to hear this from me and not hear it from the radio or something else. So I did. I went over and spent an evening with her. He also read it to me the night before, and I thought it was absolutely beautiful and perfect. Will you read a portion, Ken? There comes a time when you grow old that you have to face up to how you have lived your life, to face up to your inner self. I have always had two personas, the one out in public that I call Ken. The other one is my alter ego I know as Larry. Both of us have fought for control and each dominated for a period of time. Ken, however, for a long time has done a pretty good job of keeping Larry at bay. Ken had planned to take Larry to the grave with him, but now Larry is on his own and may have replaced Ken as the dominant persona in his body. This message here is that I am free, I am gay, and I am out. Tell me about this Larry fellow. First of all, where did that name come from? I don't know where it came from. It just popped up. But uh, Larry's my alter ego. Larry's the censor of my life as long as I was straight. He would be the one that I would talk to about what I'm going to wear today, where I'm going today, what should I do if I read a book Will other people think I'm gay? Larry was kind of the, the, the gay part who wanted to be gay and be out. And Ken was the conservative part that kept overriding Larry's decision. So Ken had to be the one that ran everything as a conservative individual. And that was down to what you would read? Oh, yes. I, I would not go to the library and check out a book uh, on gay people, or I wouldn't even buy it at a book stand for fear other people would think, oh, he must be gay. So everything I did was censored underneath. Tell me more about the reactions that started to come in. And again, this was not a private post. Uh, So that means that I I gather some strangers started to reply. Actually, hundreds of strangers have replied. Even this morning, there were 42 messages on my computer when I got up. So I have to start answering them. But yes, I, I got messages almost immediately from strangers Almost everyone was supporting and congratulating me on doing this. And many of them mentioned the fact that they were hoping that they could come out someday and that my coming out has given them courage. Are there other older individuals that have reached out to you? A number of them. They talk about having been married for 20 years and finally come out and at age 50 or something. Uh, I've had older people particularly, seem to regret not having come out. Here's what fascinates me. You had a coming out, Rebecca. Yes. To your father many years ago. Yes, 25 years ago. You came out as lesbian. Right. Did you ever suspect that your father was gay? I wasn't completely surprised when he came out, but I was mostly surprised, and I certainly had never heard of this Philip fellow. I thought... Even if my dad was gay, he had probably never acted on it. How was your coming out to him those decades ago? It was a little rough. 
Um, he was telling me the things that he'd been telling himself all these years, that this would make my life harder and it was not the right thing to do and my relationship would not last. But I proved him wrong. You've been in a long-term relationship, a marriage. For 25 years, yes. 25 years. When your daughter came out to you, do you remember thinking thoughts about your own homosexuality, Ken? Oh, yes. It was an uncomfortable position to be a gay person in the closet telling another gay person who is coming out of the closet that it's wrong to do that. You should stay in the closet if that's where you are. And I really had mixed emotions, but I just did not feel I could come out. Hmm. In other words, there was a part of you that wanted to tell your daughter that you were gay? Oh, yeah. At that moment? All my life, yes. And yet you kept that a secret for many more years after that? That's correct. Is there a part of you that is mad at your father for his initial response to your coming out? I did go through that a little bit, but I quickly forgave him. He also came around very quickly and is the biggest supporter of our marriage and our children, so I don't think of it as a bad thing anymore at all. You talked a bit, Ken, about your upbringing in Kansas. What do you remember it feeling like as a kid when you first started to realize that you were different? When I was born, of course, in Dodge City, we were regular church members and attendees. We moved because of my father's job several times and ended up in 19... 42 in Belen, New Mexico, a small town. And in that town and, and <clears throat> in that school, I met a young man that, well, he was a boy, and he invited me over to his home for a sleepover. The town is mostly a Mexican village, and the houses are adobe, and there's one heater in the living room that heats the whole house. So at night, the doors are closed off to empty rooms, and the other doors are open for the heat to circulate. Came bedtime, we uh, undressed to our underwear and went to bed. As the night wore on, the stove ran down, the room got cold, and we were snuggling, and we finally just kind of figured out what life was all about. And that was when I decided, man, this is what I'm going to stick with the rest of my life. So, yes, that was, that was it. I had decided then that I was homosexual. I was gay. And remind me how old you were. Twelve years old. Twelve years old. But that also meant that you were going to keep a secret, I guess. I immediately knew I had to keep a secret because I could not tell anybody because I knew from my training that it was a sin, it was wrong, and I'd probably go to hell if I continued. Do you think that your parents ever suspected? I don't think so, although I wondered why they never questioned the fact that I never went to school dances, never brought a girl home, never dated, never went out. But uh, the only other time I thought my mother suspected was after Rebecca was born, and they came to see their new grandchild. And my mother held her in her arms, and she said to me, I didn't think we'd ever see this baby. And I thought she meant that I was never going to have a baby and uh, that I was gay. But what she really meant was she thought I was never going to get married and therefore never have a child. Hmm. So that's the closest I got to thinking that she knew something. After you completed your four-year enlistment in the Navy, you finished college at the University of Kansas, and you liked California. So you decided to move there and find a job, and that's how you met Philip. That's correct. Tell me about the first 
time you met Philip? I met Philip for the first time while working for a new company in California as an insurance investigator. We had to do our investigations in the morning. We did our reports in the afternoon. Uh, When I got back to the office, I had a little problem with writing out this new form that I had not familiar with, and Philip came over to me and wanted to help me. And we got on real well just almost immediately. We started coffee, and then we started dating. And from then on, uh, it was Philip and I together all the time. What do you look like? He was a little shorter than me, brown hair, blue eyes, a beautiful smile, soft lips. And he, a, bit, a bit younger, I think. Oh, you. definitely. Five years younger than I was. Yes. And what did you like about spending time with him? Just the company. I mean, the fellowship, the holding hands, uh, the closeness, things like that. They were just, it just felt so good for a person who had been alone for so long. Were these the sense memories that were coming up during the pandemic as you started to write your memoirs? Yes, uh, very definitely. Uh, See? (sighs) Sorry. Even now... (sighs) It's still really visceral, huh? Very much so, yes. Ah. Do you think that that's proof it's true love? It must be because it's hung on for <clears throat> for 60 years now, buried, and then dug up. And it's kind of hard to get around it right now, but it's getting better. It's getting better. Okay. When you say it's hard to get around it, what do you mean? Except the fact that it once was and will never be again. Uh, that is a memory and it needs to be reburied, I guess. My goodness, you've, you've just reminded me of that quote by John Greenleaf Whittier. Of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been. That's it. If I had stayed. So what led to you and Philip separating? One Saturday night which I remember very clearly. We had worked in the yard all day, and we had dined with his sister and her daughter. We had showered together. We had gone to bed as usual. We had a a candle, which we kept on the nightstand at night. It, it sounds like at that point you were living as a gay man. Yes, I was. Okay. So we went to bed, and we were as intimate as we had been, and Philip suggested we might take our relationship to a step higher, which then we did, and it was a very intimate night. When you say to the next level, you mean physically? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And the next morning was Sunday, and we went to church. He was in the loft singing in the choir. I was in the pews watching what was going on, and it just hit me that no matter how beautiful our night had been, how wonderful it was, how much I loved it, according to my training, my upbringing, my religion, it was a sin. I was wrong. What I had done was not right. Uh, And I couldn't shake that. So I don't know if I ever 
told Philip uh, what what happened, but we stayed together about another month, and then <clears throat> I couldn't take it any longer, so I left. You couldn't take the shame that you felt. That's correct. You left, like, with no trace? Oh, no, no, no. I made the proper arrangements. I resigned my job at the retail credit company, and and he corresponded with me after I got home. Unfortunately, I was so determined to be straight that I did not respond to his letters, and eventually uh, he stopped writing. And you eventually got married to a woman. Again, uh, while I was being nice and straight, yes, uh, I moved to Colorado Springs, got a job as a office manager, joined the, a, church, a major church and became almost part of its staff, met a young lady in the youth group, and we did share some similar thoughts and interests. And uh, in about six months then, we married, 1961. What do you remember going through your mind when you were exchanging vows? I don't remember at all. I really don't. Uh, I was just caught up in the moment here that I was just this straight person. How many years were you married? About 15 or 16. And this is when you have Rebecca? Married in 61. She came in 72. We got divorced in 80. And how often during that marriage did you struggle between Ken and Larry? Very little, because I honestly, huh. I did everything I could to be straight. I never strayed from being straight during the marriage. Did you love her? I did. I did. It's a different kind of love than what I had with Philip. Just standing next to you, you could feel the love flowing. Uh, it was totally different, not negatively so, but it was a different kind of love. And I thought, okay, this is what heterosexual love is all about. How is it to hear that? Rebecca, about the contrast between the relationship between your parents and the relationship between your father and Philip? Well, I know exactly what he's talking about with Philip, since I feel that with my wife. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I'm sad that he didn't get to enjoy that for longer like I have. And does it change your perception of your parents, of their relationship? of what it meant to be their kid. You know, not not really. They argued quite a quite a bit when I was younger, so I'm kind of surprised they ever loved each other. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I knew they loved each other, but they they certainly had a lot of disagreements. How long did Philip keep writing you? Only a few months, very few months. And did you try to keep tabs on him? This is pre-Facebook. That's correct. And so I go to the public library and find the Long Beach phone books and call all the Philip J's in the phone book, see if I could locate him. But nobody said they ever knew me before. Uh, so you did try that? Oh, yes. I tried that after the divorce. After the divorce. That was probably one of the first things I did after the divorce was suddenly I'm free and maybe it's time to look at my other side. And so I, I started looking up. And right, you're right. There's no computer in those days. There's no way of looking up the person. During the time between leaving him and getting the divorce, I had lost or destroyed all of my records and pictures and things like that because I was moving around a lot, so something had to go. So I didn't have hardly anything left to find him with. No letters that he had had, no addresses. I had even forgotten his sister's name where she lived, and 
I gave up because I just couldn't see finding him with what limited resources I had. Do you know what happened to Philip? Has, has oh, yes. Any... One of the people who wrote to me on Messenger, having seen this story, wrote and said that her job was to find parents for adopted children when adopted children were looking for their parents. Yeah. And she volunteered to find Philip for me. And I told her, yes, I'd, I'd really love for you to do that. So within a week or 10 days, I got the first message from her. First, it was, I found Philip, and I think he's still alive. And certainly, I was elated. And then a couple of days later, she told me that she had definitely found Philip, that he had passed a couple of years ago. Uh, but she did connect me up with one of his uh, nieces in California. So I did have some contact. And how did that go? I'm so sorry you lost him. Did you have fantasies of, of maybe him being alive still and reconnecting? That's correct. That was, I, ah, that was what I really hoped for. And uh, he had had a partner for many years, but the partner had died, oh, 10 or 12 years ago. And then Philip lived alone the rest of his life until he died in 2013. And I was always hoping that... He would be alone when I found him, and we could get back together. Hmm. How is the conversation with his niece? We've got along real well. We still correspond. I uh, sent her links to the interviews that have been out, and she had part of his belongings after he passed away, and she went through them and sent me some pictures of him. So I've been very appreciative of that, and she's understanding very much of Philip and my relationship. Did Philip talk about you to her? Oh, no. He, according to her, they hardly knew him, that he was a very private person, that's the way she put it, hmm. and did not really connect with the rest of the family. Rebecca, what do you hope for your father? Uh, mostly I hope he can forgive himself. Uh, I hope he can be happy. I'm so glad he's working through all this and... I just hope he enjoys however much time he has left. Have you forgiven yourself? No. No. Do you want to find love? I'd love to, yes. This lockdown has really been tough living at home. I live alone, and uh, the days do get long. Yeah. So what I'm really looking for would just be Companionship, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really hard to be single right now. I think so. That's really uh, detracting from his dating game. Are you trying online dating? No, I I <clears throat> am not good enough with a computer to know how to do that. Okay. Would you be open to learning that? Probably, yes. Probably. Uh-huh. I w- was just noticing your hair. Will you tell me about your hair? This friend I told you about that I earlier on... Uh, the friend in the pool? The friend from the pool. Yeah. Her daughter and she and the rest of the family, after I had come out, they were all highly in favor and very supportive. And I went to their house one evening for a dinner party, and they suggested that uh, I should get my hair done like my friend had. She had this similar thing. So I thought, well, that'd be fun. Uh and I could do it now. Nobody cares. And so I got my hair dyed first in a pale pastel, which nobody noticed. 
And then uh, last time I had him put in the, the full strength. It's my way of saying that I'm out, I'm gay, and I'm free. And it's blue. It's blue and it's pink. And pink. And, and in what other ways have you embraced the true Ken? How else does it manifest? Uh, because of the, the virus, uh, oddly enough, I've not had a toe trim in months, and they were getting pretty bad. So my daughter made an appointment for us to get pedicures. We got pedicures, and she got blue toes, and I got purple toes. So my, my toenails are now just a bright purplish turquoise. Uh, I wear a wristband. I think it's a rainbow wristband. It's a rainbow. I have a, a rainbow hoodie, which is very attractive and really gets comments. I attend the um, virtual meetings at the LBG Center, doing whatever I can to further the gay cause. And what does that cause look like to you? It's so much different than it was when I was with Philip. I, we were actually in a felonious relationship because it was very illegal in California at that time, not just what we were doing, but uh, you couldn't even uh, hold hands in public. It was a, a terrible time then, and right now, it would be so much easier for young people to come out now, even though I know it is still very frightening and there's always the parental concern as much as anything. Hmm. But um, it, it's different, and I could not have come out then. It was no problem coming out now. Rebecca, do you remember that appointment to get your toes? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, we just went in for pedicures, and I went to pick my color, and he said, well, pick a color for me. Get me a nice teal or turquoise. <laughs> and it's just amazing. After all his life, you know, I'm used to him in uh, conservative colors, browns, blacks, uh, maybe navy blue on a, on a crazy day. On a crazy day. <laughs> yeah. And now uh, he wears these bright clothes. He's got this tank top. Uh, he's never let his hair go get so long as it is now. He always kept it very short, and uh, it's just amazing to see the transformation. Do you want to be married again? No. <laughs> <laughs> you've done. You've been there, done that. That's correct. That's correct. Now, of course, if it was uh, Philip, I'd marry Philip again. Hmm. <laughs> what do you think you still have to process with Philip? I have to really believe that he forgave me. I think that would be the starting <clears throat> I think that would be the starting point of telling myself that what I did was necessary at that time. And I'm very thankful for having at least found out that he did live his full life, hmm. had a partner. So I don't feel so bad about that. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Ryan. You're welcome. Thank you. Ninety-year-old Ken Feltz of Arvada and his daughter Rebecca Mays. A picture of what's come to the surface for one family during the pandemic. 
You can see a photo of Ken in his bright rainbow sweatshirt at CPR.org. And special thanks to producer Sonia Doctorian. Colorado Matters continues after a break with some perspective on Kamala Harris as the Democratic Veep pick. This is CPR News. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. It became official, as things do these days, in a tweet. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden named his running mate Tuesday U.S. Senator Kamala Harris of California, who only last year was running against Biden. Here in Colorado, State Representative Leslie Harrod of Denver co-chaired Harris's presidential campaign. Representative, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And speaking of tweets, you sent one after the announcement, quoting here, It is time that we hashtag trust black women with the keys to the Oval. Biden made the right choice. Give me an example of a situation where you saw Harris in a position, um, you know, a situation that convinced you she's ready to be, as the saying goes, a heartbeat from the presidency. Oh, well, (laughs) that is a great question. Um, I will say that I have admired um, uh, Senator Harris's leadership for years and seeing her um, as uh, a black woman in the Senate and how essential she's been in so many debates, how direct, how strong, how intelligent she's been. There's so many moments that make me proud to say that I'm her supporter. Is there an issue that made you feel very strongly about Senator Harris. Absolutely. Um, more recently, it's her work uh, tackling the issue of police brutality and policing in this country. Um, as you all know, I worked really hard to pass police reform here in Colorado with Senate Bill 217, and she was a supporter and an advisor through that. And then to see her then step into the role and also see her lead it through um, Congress has been uh, quite phenomenal. Um, so, so her actions have shown what kind of leader she is. But it's also her compassion. And when I see her interact with young people and kids and her energy, it just it's the right um, she's the right person for this time. You're saying that she was an advisor on Colorado's law enforcement policing reform bill. You know, she called me, I think, as a friend and gave me some advice that I will just always remember. And it's, you know, you can't. You can't hold on to political capital for too long. You've got to use it. And this is worth fighting for uh, re- regarding the police reform bill. And and that was exactly what I needed to continue the fight um, into those last few days. Um, and so, you know, it was just uh, it, it's been inspiring to see her lead, but also amazing to see her reach out to folks um, at the local level like myself to say, what can we do? What can I do to lift you up? So there was general encouragement. Was there a specific policy that she was pushing for in Colorado? 
I wouldn't say that. I would okay. say that we um, spoke about the work of the Black Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, um, around police reform, what that bill would look like. And I got to I gotta say, it wasn't just her that stepped in. Uh, Senator Booker um, and Representative Nagoose did as well. There was a lot of support, and, and Senator Bennett. There was a lot of support for policing reform, but we saw that it has to be led by black people in these positions. It's fascinating because there is criticism, especially from progressives, that Harris is at her heart a law enforcement candidate. You know, before she was a U.S. senator, she was California's attorney general, district attorney of San Francisco. And on the subject of police reform, to quote a New York Times piece, critics saw her taking baby steps when bold reform was needed. One phrase cropped up repeatedly on the campaign trail when she was running for president. Kamala's a cop. How how do you respond to yeah. that? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it, look, she was the attorney general for the state of, of California. She continues to break the glass ceiling for what black women can and should be doing. Um, but at the time, and if you speak with folks who were in her office at the time, she was one of the most progressive attorney generals in the country in the country. And I'm glad to say that the country has moved forward um, demanding more reform, right? Demanding an end to mass incarceration and policing reform. But if you listen to what she's saying now, she echoes that. She leads that. She has led these conversations in her role as senator. That's the record that we need to be leaning in on. As California Attorney General, though, Harris consistently refused to get involved in cases of police brutality, leaving it to the local DAs to investigate. And just, you know, by contrast, here in Colorado, the state attorney general is reinvestigating the Elijah McClain case and the Aurora Police Department, we learned this week. Um, so does that pattern with Harris in California at all trouble you? Do you think that this has been a departure from that? No, it doesn't. It doesn't trouble me. But what it does do is tell me that we need someone with that experience to really help us determine what the right policy is to hold police accountable. Um, Attorney General Phil Weiser did an amazing thing by stepping in. But Attorney General Phil Weiser is definitely a unicorn right now. We do not have enough progressive DAs and AGs elected across the country. Um, Uh, Kamala has mentioned that as well. It's something that we need to see happen now. But what was progressive 20 years ago looks very different than what is progressive today. Um, And I believe we need to ask her those questions on the campaign trail. But I know that she agrees that these law enforcement officers must be held accountable because she's already said it. I believe you got to take people at their word, you know, um, at their word. Things that I believed 20 years ago, I would not believe today necessarily. That's the purpose of progress. That's what progress should be doing. Senator Harris is the third woman picked for the vice presidency and makes history as the first black woman for a major party and the first South Asian. With her as the Veep pick, whose vote does the Biden ticket have now that it didn't have earlier this week? Wow. I mean, say that again, right? The first African-American woman and the first Indian woman in these positions. I mean, that cannot be understated. And I think that brings so much energy into the Biden campaign. The Biden-Harris ticket is one that people can get behind and shows the unity of this nation. So who does it pick up? I think it does energize black folks, but I also think it energizes the young people. One thing that I've noticed uh, and one thing that has been stated is that through these protests, and Senator Harris has been center in these protests, but through these protests, we've actually seen an increase in voter registration. 
People are coming out to vote, and I believe that they are going to be excited to be a part of this historic moment and vote for the Harris-Biden ticket. Colorado Republican Party Chairman Ken Buck issued a statement Tuesday calling Harris an extremist. He said she'd raise taxes on the middle class, push for a government takeover of health care. Is she is she too extreme for this country? You know, what's too extreme for this country is the Trump presidency, a presidency that has othered so many people, locked babies up in cages, you know, chooses to divide where he could unite That is what is uh, divisive about our country and and I think extremely problematic, if not infuriating. So this ticket will bring the country together. That's what we need to focus on Um, and we'll rebuild. I mean, let's not forget, we are gonna be in the recovery from a global pandemic. We need true leaders who will step into this role and lead this country back to where we need to be. I wanna thank you for your time. Thank you. That is State Representative Leslie Herod of Denver, who is Colorado co-chair of Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. Harris, of course, now Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden's running mate. Let's go back now to 1984, when the Democratic presidential nominee Walter Mondale made a historic announcement that his running mate would be New York Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro. Thank you, Vice President Mondale. Vice President, it has such a nice ring to it. Well, one of Ferraro's colleagues and a good friend was then Colorado Congresswoman Pat Schroeder. And Schroeder joined me earlier this morning from her home in Florida. Congresswoman, welcome back. Thank you so much. Ferraro was the first woman ever nominated for vice president. What was it like the moment you found out she was the pick? Oh, I was very excited. Now, that was like 36 years ago, if you can believe it. And it was so interesting to see how people related to her. She had places where she said they showed up with a risk corsage, and she was like, no, 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 I'm supposed to be a vice presidential candidate. So, yeah, it was it was a real glass ceiling breaker. And I am so stupid. I thought we would never see an all-male ticket again. I thought, well, this is great. But that was 36 years ago, so was I ever wrong? Um, Just to be clear on the wrist corsage thing, in other words, people were making proposals to her on the campaign trail. Is that what I hear? (laughs) Oh, all sorts of things. It It was absolutely crazy. They dealt with her as everything except a legitimate candidate. It was like, we really don't want to hear your speech. We want to, you know, we want to be your best friend, or we want to know if you have any recipes for blueberry muffins, or we brought you this corsage. It was a very awkward thing for everybody. Mondale and Ferrara, of course, lost that year. Republican Ronald Reagan was reelected. Do you think that she helped the ticket in the end or hurt it? I think she helped. Her crowds were almost bigger than his. Ah. I mean, women were very excited. And I think the thing that we don't, we can't register, but if you go back, what I remember is so many young little girls there. You know, fathers brought their daughters, mothers brought their daughters. And you keep thinking, this is really one of the first times young girls have seen somebody that looks like them running for a national ticket. And I think that that's been very helpful for the next generation. 
So I wonder if that means in the short term it might have hurt and in the long term it might have helped? Or do you think it was helpful in both yeah, senses? Yeah, I, I think in the long term it certainly helped. In the short term, I don't know. I guess it just wasn't their year. You said um, earlier that you were really quite terrible at predicting the future when it came to the predominance of male versus female candidates. What do you think happened that meant there were many more tickets to follow with just men? There really were. I really don't know. I mean, you heard all sorts of people saying, well, um, they don't have a deep enough bench, all sorts of things about women. But women really did have a very deep bench, as we saw this year. Look at all the wonderful women he looked at. He started with 28, for heaven's sakes. So it just was one of those things where I guess everybody just jumped to the quick conclusion of, no, no, the country isn't ready for it, and went back to the all-male ticket. When you say he, of course, you're referencing Joe Biden having uh, lots of, of capable right, women I'm to sorry. choose from. Right, I'm sorry. Yes, he had yeah. 28 names, supposedly, at the beginning. Well, what's your quick read on Kamala Harris as Biden's pick? You're, I just well, want to remind people, you're in Florida. You think this does anything to help Biden secure that important state? Oh, I think so. I honestly think, you know, we've had a gender gap for many years now, and it's only gotten bigger of late. So I think you're going to see a lot of enthusiasm. And what do I really think about this pick? Well, I hate to be a plagiarist, but I read this morning in the paper what someone said, and I thought it really summed it up. They said, Kamala Harris is the future of America and Mike Pence is history. So that kind of says it. I mean, she really is where this country is moving demographically and every other which way, and I think she'll just be a terrific addition. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Pat Schroeder was the first woman elected to Congress from Colorado, serving 24 years. As Schroeder pointed out, Kamala Harris will run against the current Vice President Mike Pence. In a fundraising letter this morning, he took direct aim at his new opponent. He said her selection shows that Biden and the Democratic Party have been overtaken by the radical left. And quoting here, it's no surprise he chose Senator Harris. She is weak on crime and refuses to put America first. Things are combustible on the western slope. We're seeing that with the Pine Gulch fire near Debeck and the Grizzly Creek fire near Glenwood Springs. They have forced evacuations and major road closures. The fires also create moments of eerie awe. Social media this week is full of sunset photos made more vivid by wildfire as far away as the Front Range. We wondered about the science behind this phenomenon. Harken back to grade school, says meteorologist Daphne Thompson, who's based in Norman, Oklahoma. 
Well, if you remember the Roy G. Biv, where we know about colors being red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, violet, the blue colors are on a shorter wavelength, while the red and orange is on a longer wavelength. So as the sun sets, those longer wavelengths get to us, and um, we normally will see you know, red in the sky. The thing with wildfires is that the smoke puts a lot of extra particles up in the atmosphere. So now we're getting the red scattering over even more of those particles, and you can get some amazing red sunsets during wildfires. Those particles she mentioned are indeed the key. Experimental physicist Kevin Davenport of the University of Utah told me more about them. They're very, very, very small particles, usually on the order of maybe a micrometer or a half micrometer across. So to put that into perspective, a micrometer is a millionth of a meter. Very, very small particles. And they're just the right size that certain colors of light will interact with them and scatter in a random direction. And longer wavelengths of light, so like reds and oranges, don't interact with them and they can just pass through. For the viewer, the effect intensifies as you move away from the smoke and haze and get some distance, says Daphne Thompson. You don't want to be too close to that wildfire, though, because then you're just getting smoke. So the further away you are, the better the pictures can be. Clouds can help enhance things, too. Up in the higher parts of the sky, where some of these clouds are, the colors can even be warmer. And, of course, sometimes those clouds are actually caused by the fire. If you get an intense enough fire, you can get a special type of cloud that develops where the fire causes its own thunderstorm. And then you have those clouds up in the sky that are, again, they're reflecting the sunlight, and they're even caused by the fire. But of course, stepping back and gazing at a fire or a sunset isn't a luxury some people can afford right now. Well, of course, you're always, you know, have concern about the people affected by the fire. And the same thing goes when there's a massive volcanic eruption. There are definitely people who are close to those areas that are not going to care whether the sunsets are, are red or not because their houses are burning or their property is burning. Perspective there from independent meteorologist Daphne Thompson, who's based in Oklahoma. Finally today, the Colorado Symphony has announced 10 more COVID-conscious performances at Red Rocks following the success of their Acoustic on the Rock series this summer. Here is resident conductor Christopher Dragon. We have some gorgeous uh, string repertoire program, which is perfect for anyone, whether they've been to a classical concert or not. To me, that doesn't really matter at all. It's more about experiencing this once-in-a-lifetime concert at Red Rocks because it's all going to be acoustic. Nothing's amplified. You're just going to be hearing the natural setting of an orchestra at Red Rocks.
In these COVID-conscious performances, there will be music by Mozart, Bartok, and Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, heard here in a virtual performance by some members of the symphony in June. Colorado Symphony begins another Acoustic on the Rock series tonight at Red Rocks. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News.